Hello, and welcome to another episode of Endeavors. On today's show, I speak with actor Stuart Townsend about his new film, Apache Junction, and then documentary filmmaker Mark Daguerre on Born Bad. That's coming up on Endeavors. If you listened last week, you'll remember that I had on the actress Scout Taylor Compton, who is the star of the film Apache Junction. It's a great sort of feminist twist on the traditional Western film. Well, another one of the stars of that movie is the lovely, the brilliant Stuart Townsend, who plays the role of Jericho Ford. He has also appeared in such films as About Adam, Anne Rice's Queen of the Damned, where he played the role of vampire at the Stade de Lincoln. Dorian Gray in Alan Moore's League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Aeon Flux. Chaos Theory. Battle in Seattle, which also marked his debut as writer and director, and which was based on the protest activity at the WTO Ministerial Conference of 1999 and Stranger in Paradise. On TV, he has guested in such shows as Will and Grace, Robot Chicken, Elementary, Salem, and A Law and Order Special Victims Unit. He plays as mentioned, Jericho Ford in Apache Junction, which opened on September the 24th. This is my conversation with Stuart Townsend. Stuart, how are you? That's me. Uh, Stuart Townsend, hello. Thanks, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. Good talking with you. Um, you have a, a new film, uh, Apache Junction. And, you know, it's funny. I, I, I talked to Scout um, a few days ago. This is, uh, this is not your, your, your typical Western, I, I, I think, in, in terms of what people think. It's, you know, you, it's very... You know, maybe has a, a, a has a slight um, feminist slant to it. You know, it's I, I think I think it's maybe a little more character driven than than maybe your your typical western. Um, what attracted you to the role of Jericho Ford? Well, firstly, the name Jericho Ford. I just had to read that name, and I'm like, that is such an iconic name. I want to be in this. Whatever this script is, I'm in. 
Um, but, you know, it's a little bit what you said, like, to me, this is a, a, a very classic Western. There's no gimmicks. There's no special effects. It's really like the old Westerns. I love, you know, I grew up on, on certain Westerns where you got five minute standoffs. And um, so to me, I, I just, I felt like this is great. There's no aliens. There's no, like, it's not, the conceit is, is very simple. Yet it's a female protagonist who's a journalist who's going to a, an outlaw town to try and find the truth. And I just thought that's a, that's a really great storyline. Yet the town that she, she finds is, is the town of the, the kind of the classic Western that we all imagine. And, you know, I, I just love it. I think there's really the pendulum swinging back. Like, I think we've all seen every type of Western you can imagine. And for me personally, I was really happy to just do an old school bar brawl, shoot them up, duel, you know, kind of, kind of Western high noon sort of western you know? um you know the, the the characters have a very distinct way of speaking you know whether it's their sort of southwest arizona accent or or just you know the 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 the, the swagger and, and and slang that they use um for you as an actor what kind of work and preparation goes into that well you know really at the end of the day you're reading the script and it's either on the script, it's on the page or it's not. If it's not on the page, you gotta do a lot more work. Um, but this, this film, to me, this story was, was there, you know, Justin Lee, who's the director, he wrote it. He loves Westerns and he's very knowledgeable about it. Um, in, in so many respects, like there were so many details uh, with the guns and, and the duels and that he, you know, there's little details that you and I may not have noticed, but Western fans will notice. Uh, at one point, I wanted to wear a hat that, that looked good, like a Western hat, and it was a fedora, but I had no idea. And he was like, listen, no, you, you can't wear that. It's a fedora. <laughs> and, and I love that. I was like, okay, I respect that. You know, he's, he's, and he even said, you know, fedoras came in in 18, whatever. Like, he knew the, the time range for that, and, and I appreciate that a lot. And I think those details matter um, in terms of creating something authentic and, and fun that people want to watch. Uh, there's there's a great cast yourself. There's Scout. You've got Thomas Jane uh, and, and Trace Atkins, who who's doing a lot more um, acting these days. Trace's wife was in it. Um, we're working with 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 a cast uh, like this. What what's great about this? And and any any favorite memories? Because it seems like there there'd be a lot of fun times with with people like that. We had a lot of fun. I tell you. I mean, the, the sad thing is I didn't get to work with Trace. I'm not in any scenes with him. Uh, obviously, I got to meet him and hang out with him on set, but didn't actually get to, to play on, on screen, which is unfortunate. Um, but did get to work with Thomas Jane. I mean, Thomas is he's just such a dude, you know? And um, yeah, I mean, look, that's part of the joy of being an actor is getting to work with other actors. Um, you know, sometimes there's actors that you hugely admire and you get to work with them. And it's, that's always a, a, big, a big plus. Uh, in this particular film, it was a really like spirited cast. People were happy. We were here having fun, you know, like it wasn't a angst ridden kind of movie. It's, it's a fun uh, spirited Western. And so we had a blast. I mean, to be honest, we, we had some great nights out on the town, which that doesn't always happen on, on movies. You know, sometimes movies can just be all work and no play, but we were kind of reversing that. <laughs> we were having a good time. Well, one of my, 
favorite parts is is the discovery that Jericho has this old Indian for a roommate, which in a Western town is unusual, but I think looking at it from today's perspective is, is actually quite relevant in, in terms of this relationship between the indigenous community and, you know, the, the, the settlers or, or, or the white man. Was, was that something that was ever discussed either with you and Justin or, 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 or the cast at all? It wasn't discussed. I think it's inherent in the script and it's what you're saying. Like, like it was one of the things I liked about Jericho is that he would have an Indian friend at a time when that was pretty rare. And that just shows A, the type of character he was, which is not a normal guy. And B, he's an outlaw, he's a, an outcast. Um, and the Wasco friendship is, is really central to, to him. And I really love that. Like that gave me a lot of, um, you know, I created a whole backstory for my life as Jericho based on that friendship, because that was an unusual, that would not happen in that time. Like there would have been very few relationships between uh, cowboys and, 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 and American Indians that would have been positive back in those days. So I really used that as an actor to say, well, this guy's clearly a different breed of, of, of character back then. And, and yeah, and I, I just even in story format, it was a different story. It was uh, something a little unusual. Uh, one other thing that stuck out for me was, was the dialogue. Because I, I think if, if you look at, at classical Westerns, there's, a, there, there's maybe a stereotype that the dialogue's not all, you know, it's, it's much more about the action than the dialogue. But there was a lot of like darkly humorous lines in this, um, you know. Uh, what, what, what did you appreciate about, about some of the one-liners that, that Jericho gets to say? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing. You read it and you're like, God, I, I can't wait to say this line. <laughs> you know? um, but I think that's a tribute to Justin and the fact that he loves Westerns so much. He's, he's seen them all. I mean, start talking Westerns with him and he would start naming obscure Westerns that you never heard of. But I think he's collated all of that. Um, that viewing time and that love of Westerns and, and into the dialogue, particularly not just the story, but um, absolutely that, like as a character, when you get to say great lines that feel true to that time period, that's, that makes your life as an actor so much easier. It allows you to just be that character. So I just really, yeah, I really appreciated that. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to work Justin and, and make the movie. Uh, what, what type of, of, physical training do you do you know there's a lot of firing guns gun slingings a lot of ride you know running around even some even some horseback riding and I, I I know you've done I think a little bit of that before in in, in some of your other films and, and 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 training for films but what was there anything specific that you found you had to do for for this type of role I mean I've done a lot of fight training and I've worked with a lot of doing uh, working with guns so that stuff is is is, is pretty easy but Horse riding. I haven't done a lot of horse riding for many years and we had to gallop off into the sunset. And I was like, gallop? Okay. You know, I haven't done that. And there was a few little maneuvers that I had to do. And, and that was great because they were like, listen, we have these horses. You can go on them anytime. So I was on them all the time. When I wasn't working, if I had a break, I was on the horse. And that was such a joy, like as a, as a human being to just to get free horse riding lessons for a couple of weeks you know that's when you go wow this acting gig is is really fun and that was the only thing where i was like okay i'm not quite comfortable with that but by the time we did it i was just loving and they had great horses my my horse was called stinger 
and he was just an amazing horse. So that was, yeah, that was kind of the only thing where I didn't, I wasn't quite sure how, how that was going to work, but it worked. Uh, well, the film is uh, Apache Junction and it's in theaters as of today, I believe, September 24th, as of today. As of today. Yeah. Uh, it's a great film. I, I think it's sort of a, a, a twist on, on, on the traditional Western. Uh, I encourage everybody to go see it. Stuart Townsend, it was brief, but uh, thank you so much for, for doing this today. Thanks so much, Dan. Great talking with you. All righty. Take care. Okay, bye. That was my conversation with actor Stuart Townsend. His new film, Apache Junction, is out now. My next guest is a documentary filmmaker whose previous credits include The Murder of John Lennon, Gamer Revolution, The Disappearing Male, Why Men Cheat, The End of Men, How We Got Gay, Transforming Gender, and Family Camera. For his next piece, he focuses on the Ontario Training Schools, which is perhaps the province and maybe even the country's most shameful secret. OTS was a network of 13 provincially operated detention facilities that were established to house troubled children 8 to 16. They started in the 1930s, and the last one finally closed in 1984. And all of them were, the kids, there that is, were deemed delinquent, um, whether they ran afoul of their schools or their families or, or judges. And for the first time, four survivors of the program and the system are revealing stories of abuse that went on there um, as a $600 million class action lawsuit moves through the courts. It premiered on uh, CBC Doc POV on September 25th, and I got to speak with the director, Mark Daguerre, last week. <laughs> yeah that's too hot too and hot then, you know there was i mean there was in in the i remember in the in the interior of bc it reached like 46 right that's humanly uh, yeah like lit like lit and burnt down sent sent set all kinds of canadian weather records temperature records so right yeah yeah the hottest i went to india once and um yeah it was about like I don't know, it was because I'm like a more of a Fahrenheit guy, but it was like 115 when Oof. I, we, yeah. actually, I was there for about five hours before I decided that, you know what, like my, I'm just I'm not going to be able to do this. Like, 
we ended up sitting in a travel agent's office trying to get north to Kashmir just to get out of it. It was actually like, I was like having an anxiety attack from the heat. Like I actually was like this weird, like my body is going to start boiling. Like, but it's a very odd feeling when it's too hot. Like it's, yeah. uh, it's hard to describe, like, cause it has a, a really profound psychological impact yeah you know, the feeling that it's too hot is really um c- creates a lot of panic i uh i taught in in south america for six weeks back in 2016 and it was like every you know it was june and july and every day i was there was like between 30 and 37 but because it's june and july and it's the south that was actually their winter right <laughs> it was i mean it was in it was ecuador the galapagos but it's technically the south pacific southern hemisphere so it was their winter and it was just the strangest thing like having oh. a place be that hot basically all year round right you that know must have been a neat place to go though oh oh it was amazing just sea lions just like on the you know just like on the sitting in the main street or in the restaurant when you're having dinner and you know oh. all the marine life all the birds it was it was wow. it was quite the place Oh, wow. That's very cool. Yeah. But uh, yeah, let's talk about Born Bad. <laughs> um, you watched it, I assume? Yes, yes. I, uh, I, I got to see a little, uh, some snippets of it. Cynthia was very nice in, in, in sending me the, the links, the link. Um, it's, it's a very... You know, I, I think it's a very powerful story and, and at times it can be tough to watch. I think just just given, you know, what what your subjects are, are talking about and, 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 and what they're going through. Um, I'm, I'm curious what brought you to this story. Well, um, I guess I've always been interested in, um, you know, kind of the history of difference people you know sort of outcasts you know people that were kind of scapegoated or demonized you know in our time like this concept of delinquency is you know something that when I was a kid anyway like it was just a very present kind of idea you know that there were bad kids and you know your parents were always warning you against them and you know and everyone when I was growing up you always kind of knew about these things called reform schools and um and of course they weren't called reform schools in Ontario they were these things they were called training schools but the phrase reform school was kind of the generic term and I actually you know it got started just because I was doing research on the history of delinquency in the 20th century kind of interested in this whole it was more almost like a pop culture kind of interest like that you know those 50s juvenile delinquency movies or you know teens you know gone wild and all that kind of stuff and um it didn't take long for me when I was looking into it it just through that pop culture prism to to come across this large the actual history like the the real thing that was going on and then it really just was like, you know, hop, skip and a jump to this coming across the, this a few stories about these things called Ontario training schools, um, you know, that actually, uh, I guess, 
Well, you know, it didn't take me long to also find that there was a $600 million class action lawsuit that had been filed against the Ontario government for the abuses that happened in these places. But I was really struck by how current it was to some extent, because a lot of when you look at kind of delinquency and deviant youth and all that kind of stuff, you often come across like 30s, 40s kind of things and uh or in the 50s obviously there was this big fear about you know what was happening to teenagers etc but you know i mean the last one closed in 1984 in ontario so i mean that really caught my my eye um it's like wow yeah like boy george you know on the one hand and you know or like thriller or you know duran duran and like MTV, blah, blah, blah. But in the meantime, like these places were still open. So it really just started with that. It was actually kind of accidental. Nobody's really looked at these places. Um, the lawsuit was really the thing that made them get reported on at all. I think they've sort of been overlooked for a bunch of different reasons. Um, anyway, that's really just, I'd never heard of them. And, you know, it's telling that I hadn't. I grew up in Toronto, like, and it was just kind of this, uh, they're kind of like, um, they were kind of hiding in plain sight, I guess, in a way. I mean, they always put them in small places. Um, so like in Toronto, you really didn't have, you know, you didn't really see what was going on. And, you know, and the vast majority of kids in these places were from small towns. So it was just this kind of weird thing, you know, like, and it really changed my perspective on, you know, small town life in Ontario, which tends to be kind of this idealized, you know, like the city is where the bad things happen. You kind of think about, oh, small towns, nobody locks their doors, blah, blah, blah. And then you look at what was actually going on in these places and it was pretty horrifying. You know, I'm, I'm struck uh, by the fact, particularly, I think it was Wendy was her name, you know, even after all this time, she's still very visibly emotional when talking about her experience from a from a director standpoint. What was it like, you know, getting these subjects to talk about their experience in, in, in such a raw way? And, and when this emotional trauma came across their, their face and, and came across the screen, what kind of what kind of conversations went into oh do do we want to show this do we do we need to go th this far well i think it's it's often the case when you're talking to people that i mean the thing about that film is um those people who are getting very emotional um like her and thomas um, have suffered a lifetime of trauma, okay? Um, they are still traumatized. Um, and they had never spoken about their experiences before. I was literally the first person that they talked to about what happened to them beyond, you know, what they chose to tell their families over the years or not tell or, or you know, like, I think it's something that um, makes it very powerful when you see um, 
how close to the surface trauma remains if it's not dealt with, right? Like you just had to, I didn't do anything other than just, you know, I mean, like, it's just like asking them what happened. And because, you know, the, the context of the interview was, you know, far more intense, probably an experience for them than, um, I mean, both of them were incredibly relieved to get it off their, their chest and finally, you know, tell somebody, you know, and both of them are in the lawsuit, right? So they're, they're both, you know, like you don't have, you know, there's no arguing with the fact that what happened to them was hor horrific. I mean, you wouldn't believe the stuff I uh, left out, okay, in terms of what stuff they told me. Right. Um, but it's, you know, I mean, that's the, the thing about documentary, right? I mean, I got into documentary because, you know, I really believe in the first part of that word, document, to document. That's what, that's what that is. I'm documenting someone's trauma. And they wanted it to be known what happened to them and I'm happy to, sh to share it. You know, the whole thing about this film in part is that, you know, th these people are victims of a time when the concept of trauma didn't even exist, literally, okay? Like, it's as simple as that, okay? The concept of trauma, childhood trauma, did not exist. There were no words for it. So all these kids were brutalized and tormented and tortured by a regime that didn't even have any like concept of what abuse was, right? So yeah, punishing kids was mainstream. Disciplining kids was mainstream. There was no line that was drawn between discipline, punishment, abuse, torture, okay? Like there's no, there were no lines. Kid, people could do whatever the hell they wanted with kids, especially kids that were deemed to be different, didn't fit, were the wrong race, were, had the wrong kind of moral, you know, upbringing, like, there were all sorts of reasons they tortured children. And, you know, anyway, like we've come a long way for all the backsliding we've done in all sorts of other ways as a, as a race of beings, like the rise of the concept of trauma has been like one of the, the greatest things that has ever happened, that we now understand what trauma is and what it does to people. Uh, I'm, I'm curious in, the, the process of making this what you learned about about trauma or or what you you know if if what you thought you knew was trauma changed over over your your course of making this no it didn't change I know a lot about it already what changed was um what I really learned um uh was how common it was you know, like the, the incidence of it, you know, like the amount of, uh, 
the number of kids that that were you know i mean we're talking about you know thousands of people whose lives were like shortened by what happened to them they died very young either of drug overdoses or suicide or i mean you're talking like vast numbers of people i think i you know i think it really like i like i said it really opened my eyes to um you know, I suppose I maybe didn't know all that much about the ki the kinds of family mayhem that the extent of like, you know, when you're dealing with parents that were in many cases probably traumatized themselves, like Rick, the, the guy who's sort of the main guy in, in the film, like I go, go into his story, I needed a main character, but you know, he was brutalized by his father for many, many years. His father was a vet. You know, like a lot of, you know, there's a lot of undiagnosed PTSD in the parents. And I suppose also just the, the amount of uh, mayhem that alcohol caused at that time, you know, like you find it's a theme that like comes up over and over and over again. Alcoholism in the home, the kinds of corporal punishment that, that existed, um, but yeah, I mean, I don't, I think um, the people in my film are all on this kind of spectrum, right? Like some of them have dealt with it very better than others, I'd say. And, but yeah, I mean, I learned, I read a lot about the, the history of the emergence of the concept how it was that the the, the idea of what trauma was because trauma always existed and the word obviously existed for for physical injuries like someone could suffer a physical trauma like you know like when you fall and break your leg that's a trauma it's a physical you know it's a physical like any kind of wound on your your body is was always called a trauma um, but the idea of a psychological trauma the idea that what happened to you, I mean, the, you know, I mean, the Germans fought that concept of psychological trauma for decades. They, they fought against the idea that even the people in the camps in World War II, when there was um, people were suing the, the West German government, the Germans fought for decades to disallow the concept of, of psychological trauma. You had to prove that you'd been physically abused or tortured or tormented. You couldn't say, well, I was psychologically damaged. They didn't allow it. So anyway, I, I did a lot of reading about that. And also like the concept of battered children was something that I didn't know about. And the evolution of that concept of the battered child, um, you know, which is a concept from the 1960s, was also something that was new to me. It, it, I found it odd that I that I made this comparison, but when I, when I was watching it, the first thing that that came to mind that you know would what that I you know sort of tangentially knew about was the 60s scoop. And in residential schools, just just in terms of the abuses that we know to have gone on, and and, and you know the deaths of all these children who died young, and you know maybe the, the alcohol problems, is 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 that a fair comparison to be making? 
Yeah, I think it's fair. Definitely. I mean, all those things to me, all many of these things, I think, like the residential schools, the abuse in the Catholic Church, um, I think are on a continuum that just relates to this larger issue of how we used to treat children as a society. And I think Canada um, is an incredibly brutal place, like has an incredibly brutal history when you look at how they treated kids. You know, I mean, people look at, you know, the Scottish, uh, you know, roots of a lot of these systems. Um, the Scots, you know, as you probably know, were notorious. You know, their school system was notorious. Um, the Ontario school system is an adaptation of the Scottish school system. But yeah, I mean, different reasons for the abuse, you know, these kids in my film, like they are white working class. Um, and in their case, um, they're being explicitly punished, right? Like there's not, you know, you've got the gloss of pedagogy, the supposed, you know, bullshit pedagogy that frames things like the residential schools. But it's also there in the, the training schools. But the explicit thing with the training schools is punishment. Like they are literally being punished. That's the, the primary thing. So like in some sense, you I think of them as, yeah, like the residential schools for sure. They And they are residential schools. The kids were taken from their parents, removed from the home. And, they, and there was that same um, uh, effort, you know, or coercion to to make them conform to some standards of behavior conform to cultural cultural norms right in the case of the rest the um, tra training schools conform to middle class behavioral standards because poor kids were seen as you know they weren't they didn't fit but you know the the you can sort of split the difference with the training schools because in part, they're that, they're related to the residential schools, but they're also explicitly jails for children. So there's a carceral frame around them. They were jails for kids, you know, there's, and it wasn't until the Young Offenders Act and the rise of, um, you know, um, group homes, these smaller kind of institutions that sort of came to the fore in the in the 70s there's a big wave of change that hits you know canada and other places where the group home system is the so there's this uh deinstitutionalization that happens in the same way like with the psychiatric hospitals they de there's this deinstitutionalization where all these people that were in mental hospitals are released into the community in that case because they thought they had like wonder drugs that were going to keep them stable which they didn't but um but the what happened with the training schools was part of that wave of deinstitutionalization that led to you know it's kind of crazy to think that there was a time where people thought the answer 
to solving the problem of a kid that was getting into trouble was to put them in an institution rather than give them therapy or, but yeah, no, for, for sure. There's they, they, all those things relate, I think. You know, he holds up, I forget who it was. I think it was Thomas holds up a Bible, right at, you know, right in one of the opening scenes. And, uh, you know, obviously we know the impact that the Catholic church had on, on residential schools, but, but with the training schools, how much does religion play a factor, especially since there was a lot of religious people not only running these schools, but also running the government? Well, yeah, it's kind of, you know, it's funny. They're, they're not religious schools. Like they're, they are run literally by the Canadian government. The church was, was involved in, I think, two of them is kind of like you know, co-productions between the Catholic Church and the I think one in particular is St. John's. But in general, they they were actually secular institutions. But of course, the Bible was, you know, part of the. They all had religious study, uh, but there were no priests. Um, you had access to a priest or a pastor. I think there was always a chapel or whatever on the, but it wasn't a big part. Religious education wasn't a big part of, of these schools. It really was, um, there was a lot of, you know, physical activity. Like there was a lot of, the schools actually seemed to have been left, you know, kind of to their own devices to, to sort of decide on whatever kind of like, supposed curriculum they were the kids were meant to be subjected to the main thing that was they were really run like you know the kids had to make their beds immediately when they got up they would be disciplined for things like not making their bed properly like they were really and because there were so many ex-military people there there really was that sense of like whipping kids into shape there was a lot of emphasis put on physical exercise very abusive forms of of like physical endurance kind of things. Like they would have to go on these hikes, you know, for like ridiculous length, you know, and if you were being punished, you actually had to carry heavy weights on the, on the, the hike. And, but anyway, yeah, I wouldn't say that religion was an, an overarching thing just to the extent that, you know, like it was sort of everywhere. Like when I was growing up for sure, there was, you know, the Bible was much more of a mainstream thing than it is now. Uh, you know, I think it, I think it states that the majority of these schools went from like 54 to 84, um, yeah, correct. which those are very morally different decades. You know, the fifties was very like, Oh, you know, and then the sixties and seventies were a bit wild. Uh, you know, I I'm curious, you know, given how much, I guess, society's morals have, changed and evolved over the years how you think we've altered our definition of bad or 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 delinquent compared to back then right yeah it's an interesting question i mean i think that we don't a lot of things that used to you know that the word bad you know the word unmanageable incorrigible which were kind of death sentences for kids if you were deemed to be that 
um, clearly don't exist anymore, right? We don't refer to kids as un unmanageable or incorrigible. Um, there's still lots of kids that get into trouble with the law, clearly. Um, but, you know, the I, we definitely, you know, like, like Shelley was sent away for truancy, right? Like that's literally the reason she was sent away because she was skipping school and was a chronic truant. That was one of the reasons I got interested in this subject because when I was a teenager, I had a very troubled kind of upbringing and I was a chronic truant. And it was actually sort of like there, but for the grace of God go I kind of moment because I, when I was doing the research, I found out that these things actually existed when I was in high school, when I was skipping school. And all it would have taken would be for my, my parents were so, you know, private and, you know, they did, would never want the, any kind of attention drawn on them or the embarrassment of having a kid that was like, you know, not going to school was so great that they never would have contacted children's aid or, or the truant officer or whatever. But I think, I don't, I think that what's changed is that, you know, there's just a lot more you know, yeah, where does that category still live? I guess it's, you know, with, with kids that do like serious crime, you know, crimes that would be considered crimes that an adult, that if an adult did them, they, it would be a crime, right? The, the thing about these schools that was so kind of menacing for kids was that kids would do things that weren't crimes, that if an adult did them, they wouldn't get into trouble. But if a kid did them, you know, you were, so you didn't have to commit a crime to be sent to a training school. I think now it would just, it's sort of like a general category of like a crime is a crime. And if it's a serious crime, a kid, we have systems that, you know, I mean, the thing again is that back then the concept of autism didn't exist. The concept of behavioral disorders didn't exist. The concept of learning disabilities didn't exist, right? Attention deficit disorder just didn't exist. ADHD didn't exist. So there was this, just this catch-all category of like a kid is being bad. He's a bad kid. And that was it. You know, I mean, what happens now is this, there's so much nuance that can be laid upon a kid that's displaying, um, you know, behavioral problems you know, I mean, Thomas was being raped and molested in his home, right, by his stepfather. So he gets into trouble with the law, right? Wow, like surprise, surprise, you know, and it ends up in a training school where he's raped, you know, by somebody else. I mean, you know, this is like a kid who by the time he's 12, this has happened to him. When he gets out of training school, what happens? Oh, he ends up in jail. Oh, that's a surprise. I mean, I think people just had absolutely no idea what to do back then with kids. I think it's literally as simple as that. They literally had no idea. And thank God for you know child psychology and all the 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 young you know researchers and psychologists that. You know, you mentioned the change in the times, you know, one of the things that changed was you go from, you know, ex-army, ex-police, 
guarding kids in these places to people like Don White, who's in my film, the old guy, who, who's basically a hippie who wanted to help children. So he, you know, as a young hippie, goes to Bowmanville to try and help these kids. And he's dealing with all these fucking like ex-military. And there's actually like this huge culture clash that happens in those places in the, in the 60s and 70s, where you get this new generation of social workers, child psychologists, who are, you know, who are raised in a much more liberal milieu, who are, you know, dealing with these new theories of education, um, you know, these new theories of uh, trauma and abuse and what it does to kids. And, you know, literally like a hardcore culture clash between these old, and, you know, in some of the schools, these, the younger people, the younger psychologists and therapists who had been hired by the government to do this, they tried to set up things like group therapy sessions and the old guards, literally the old guard <laughs> would say, I'm not fucking sitting down with a, those kids, you know, like what, we're going to have a rap session with these kids. They didn't want to do have anything to do with it. It was just like, this is, we're laying down the law and, you know, so, but eventually it kind of like works its way through the system and, the, you know, and, and those younger people start becoming more influential in government and they become the new status quo. And all of that leads, you know, and all those old guys kind of die off or retire or whatever. And then you get a new generation of people, a much more informed generation. And then that leads to things like changes in the, in the law, like the Young Offenders Act and stuff like that. You know, we've, uh, just on that note, we, we've, heard the terms quite a lot lately uh institutionalized racism or abuse systemic um from where we from where we were during the the time period that this film documents and in, in, until now obviously a lot of changes have been made like you mentioned the young offenders act but are there are there could we still be doing more you think to have more safeguards in place to prevent future abuses in institutions, whether it's in foster homes or even in the workplace, for example? Yeah, again, yeah, good question. I mean, we're doing a lot more. It's very hard, you know, it's, it's getting harder. Definitely, if you're a pedophile, to operate within those networks, the larger institutional networks, right? I mean, the training schools were like honeypots for pedophiles. There was no vetting. Vetting didn't exist. Now, of course, any, you know, we also like, how would you find out about somebody's, it was so easy to kind of like disappear for a few years and then come back. And, you know, um, these days with di the digital realm, it's much harder to, you know, you can't just, you know, move and like turn up in a new city, which is what used to happen, right? People would move all the time. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a lot harder and then, but I think, you know, that kind of energy probably just goes elsewhere. 
you know, too, like people that are like that, if you, if that's your, if that's what driving you, like there's sort of, you know, if you're an evil person, like a lot of them are going to find a way, but, you know, I think, you know, I think probably more like things like private schools and smaller schools, you, you do still sort of see, we've got, you know, I think the, the whole world has gone through this massive shock of, you know, kind of, this big reveal that kind of one institution after another, one revered institution after another has kind of like been, you know, stood unmasked as these places of great horror for women, children, vulnerable people. I mean, it's, you know, you think about the church in general, like, I mean, it's probably the first thing most people think about yeah. if, if you're not religious, right? Like if it's kind of the top of mind, that's all you associate with, with the church, you know, but, you know, I think we can probably, yeah, always do more, but, uh, you know, and the stats are, we're looking at all these historic abuse cases, historic, sexual, physical, psychological abuse cases, you know, what are the ones that we'll find out about later? It's, you know, it's hard to, what we're seeing now, you know, I, I think there's the line keeps getting it or the circle of, you know, I always think about, you know, like there's this circle of tolerance that's kind of happened over time, right? Where we told, we're much more accepting of, of many you know, people can't be fired for being gay. Right. Right. Like there's like over time, you know, people can be fired for being, you know, verbally abusive to their underlings at work. You know, that's a great change. You know, like it's an amazing kind of thing, like the things we've swapped out, you know, like, and those are all really good things. Like, but yeah, I mean, toxic people are, you know, they're just, they're always going to be there. It's just uh, what kind of safeguards do we put in place to limit their effect and limit the damage they do? You, uh, you mentioned vetting. Um, and it strikes me that that's one, still one thing that organizations just make no effort to do. Like you saw it here in Canada with Juvie Payette, like everyone was telling the prime minister, we could have told you these things if you'd asked us or, you know, more recently on sort of a lighter note, the, you know, the whole thing that happened with Jeopardy when naming the new host and there was the whole scandals, everyone's just like, this was like, this was not a secret. Like just, you know, if you did your job, you, you would have known this and you wouldn't have to, you know, be in damage control. Yeah. Why do you think there is still, is, is, is there, is there a fundamental flaw with the, the, the system in which, people or, or companies get vetted or is it just laziness on on the part of the people who are doing it i think it's yeah i think it's yeah i mean it's probably both i mean i think that there's um we're only just now like getting to the i mean a lot of the stuff that relates to social media is is kind of a new type of phenomenon so it's you know some somebody that posted something stupid 10 years ago on Twitter, you know, I mean, I think it's, yeah, I mean, I think that 
people need to get up to speed with that kind of stuff. And hopefully over time, I think we're in a bit of, um, it's kind of like a, um, early stages of this kind of thing. Like, oh, people that are very, very ambitious are already very careful, right? They know that they just don't, right? And there's a lot of stupid people, you know, it's like that stuff like just quite a while ago now, but you used to hear that universities were checking social media accounts of, you know, incoming students and they would go to their Facebook and if they saw tons of photos, you know, of this person being plastered at a party, you know, like it didn't look good for their, their prospects of getting into the graduate program you know, that they've been an idiot on Facebook four years ago. You know, I think in general, there's a lot of people that just know better. You know, I interviewed a guy years ago who's a very kind of high, high-end high digital guy who teaches at MIT. And um, he said, I would never put anything in an email that I wouldn't, you know, that would not be slid across the desk in front of me in a, in a lawyer's office, right? Like, did you send this email? Like, and they just present, I know people that have been fired from jobs, you know, government jobs for things they sent in emails. But I think it's just, you have to, you have to presume that everything you do online could be presented to you sitting in a lawyer's office, right? And I think that, a lot of people are just not that digitally savvy. And I think that, I don't know, that's like, I don't do social media at all, not for that reason, but I, I just can't take the uh, primordialism of it. You know, I mean, I can't, I mean, I think the fact that we're talking that the last two, three days that I've had to think about Nicki Minaj's friends cousins balls you know <laughs> it's kind of like the surest sign of like civilizational decline yeah. you know i mean come on really like this is the world we live in where i have to think about somebody's fucking balls like come on like this is the world we're in i mean it's so pathetic um finally you know born born bad is is a very powerful film um it might be triggering for some people might not be just depending on you know on on their on their lived experiences and and you know that that's fine but what it ultimately what do you want people to take away from it when 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 they watch it i want them to know about what happened um to these people but i i want them also to really look at it as a, like, um, it, to me, it's like a story of, of resiliency. And, you know, I mean, it's really important for me it, that people see the people in my film as survivors, you know, that people, people that made it. And, um, and it's kind of amazing in a way, like how much human beings can take and still kind of keep going, you know? Like, I mean, that's what I, they stand in for all the people that aren't speaking, who can't speak. Um, 
they've all been very much helped by the fact that this lawsuit is happening because they feel like it's, they want to be, they want people to know. And, and I do feel, you know, I do, I did feel some responsibility to just kind of get the word out in, in a way like that this had gone on, that this had happened to these people. And, and I really do hope that they, they see justice. The person who brought the, the, the case against the government died this year. I know I, there's a little card at the end of the film, like I, I dedicated the film to him. You know, he's the guy who, who made this case happen and he didn't live to see it go to court. Died of a massive heart attack, you know. So that's mostly, but it's really important that, you know, like I think it's like, yeah, like resiliency. And um, that's it. Well, the film is Born Bad and it airs on The Passionate Eye, I think starting the 25th? It's CBC uh, POV. POV, yeah. Yeah, POV Strand, POV Docs. Uh, Yeah, September 25th, 8 p.m. And then it's on Gem that night, the streaming site. Perfect. Well, I I encourage anybody who um, has those outlets, those channels available at their disposal uh, to please uh, check out Born Bad. I think it's I think it's a film and a story that um, all folks need to be made aware of. Uh, Mark DeGuerre, thanks so much for your for your time today. Thank you very much. Great meeting you. Nice talking to you. You too. All right. Have, have a good day. Stay safe out there. Thank you. Bye bye. That was my conversation with Mark Daguerre, director of the new documentary, Born Bad, which premiered on the CBC Doc POV on September 25th. That does it for me today. I will be posting another episode on Wednesday, uh, my birthday special. I'm turning 33. Uh, My old friend from high school, Gareth, um, we did this bef- a couple years ago before when we were both in London, but he decided to interview me. Uh, we recorded it back in July, but I thought I would save it for now. So that will be airing uh, Wednesday, and then I will have another regular episode on Friday as well. If you like the show, please find, subscribe, Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Deezer, wherever you get your podcasts. Instagram, Facebook, Endeavors Radio. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Bye for now.